Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify. And to the dark, yes. It's dark in here tonight. Dark in honor of the night. In honor of... Well, come on in. Come in. Come in. I'll tell you. There. Settle. Drink. Goodies. They're there. Wait until your eyes adjust and you can find them. Okay? Okay. Well, it's dark. We're back from Worldcon. Chicon 7 had a very good time until Saturday night. Saturday night, I found out we, Tales to Terrify, did not win a Parsec Award for being the niftiest, scariest, most wondrous new podcast in the multiverse. That honor went to Toasted Cake. Congratulations, Toasted Cake. I sent them a congratulatory note. Saturday night. Ah, well. Sunday, I went to the Hugo Awards, the up-picker designate for the Starship Sofa. Sat in the nominee section. That was nice, like being at the Oscars, right up front, 
Robert Silverberg in front, Gene Wolfe, Neil Gaiman to, to Celia's left. As an acceptor, I was on the aisle, and a lot of Hugos passed by me that evening. I actually held one during the rehearsal. It's a hefty little bugger. Beautiful bass this year, resonant of Pablo Picasso's statue in Daly Plaza here in Chicago. You'd have to see it. Ah, well, the moment came, and it went. Squee cast one. Half a dozen squeeing ladies and one guy accepted the Hugo on behalf of, I guess, themselves. No, no, congratulations to them. Women, man, they, they do a great show. And hell, the Starship pioneered Hugos for podcasts. They've been nominated every year since. That's an accomplishment to be proud of. Tony's the Meryl Streep of podcasting. But I never got to deliver the acceptance speech that I'd prepared uh, no, I'll not do it here. But it, it was nice. It wasn't self-serving or congratulatory. I, I think it struck the perfect balance between humble thanks and embracing the whole form of podcasting. Well, anyway. We had a private elevator up to the 33rd floor, directly to the suite where the Hugo Losers Party was being held. And that was nice. But seriously, no, we, we had a grand time. I had a reading from Drink for the Thirst to Come on Friday. I had nice chats with my betters, David Brin, uh, chatted with Neil for a while. I had a somewhat confusing conversation with astronaut story Musgrove, who's one of my personal heroes. And, well, you know, it was Worldcon. Great few days. And the cats, the lovely Miss Tabitha and Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, have well, more or less forgiven us this hiatus in attention. Well, they had B.C. Bell and his wife, dearly beloved, stopping by to feed and attend them. I think they liked that. So, we're back, and here we are for show... Egad, show 35? Wow. Thank you, Mahler. Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, took care of our guests last week. I hope you weren't too put off being glared at by those golden eyes for the hour plus you were here. Probably, but it was a show about a cat, so consider its special effects. First, notice the new art, hmm? Bottled eyeball. Yum. The work of the month is courtesy of Skeet Sienski. It is entitled Eye Drop and was originally designed in pen and ink and brought to life with Photoshop. Skeet is a custom illustrator and designer who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife, two kids, and his pugs, and Cthulhu on the weekends, he says, though I have no idea what that means exactly. His passion for bringing the unreal to reality is limited only by the size of the interdimensional tear in the space-time continuum, he says. And you can see more of Skeet's work at www.facebook.com slash beyondthedisc. We'll put that below so you can just click on it. Skeet is also Tales to Terrify's art director. He's the one who wrangles new art and sometimes provides it, as he has here. When I first became involved with Tony C. Smith and with the Starship Sofa, oh, years and years ago now, Skeet was the guy who did the covers for all the Starship books. 
His cover for Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1 inspired my novella Lord Dickens' Declaration, and having been inspiration, Skeet got the job of going on to illustrate it. Again, as I said, that's, that's a ways back. Skeet provides art for the Starship, for us, for Drabblecast, et al. And in addition to making our walls pretty and spooky, Skeet is a disc golf artist, and if you want to know what that is, have a look. Click on that URL I gave you earlier, the Facebook, and you can find those lovely discs he customizes. They're like the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined cars of the 60s, but round, small, swift, and dark. Go ahead. You'll see. Tonight. Tonight, we begin with something different. Remember, what, two, three weeks ago, we featured a tiny poem called Egg Horror Poem. The world, life, and death as viewed by eggs in a carton in the fridge. Well, that lovely little piece was by Laurel Winter and was read by my wife, Cecilia, and we both enjoyed it so much I got a hold of Laurel and asked her for something else, and she sent this. So... Here again is the team of Winter and Santoro, back again for Run, Run, Run by Laura Winter. Where are you? Peggy hissed, ducking to check beneath the table. She kicked the skirt of the blue chair. Nothing under there. Come out right now, she said. Her hair swung in front of her face as she stalked, a dingy brown that made her remember the gold of childhood like his hair. Come out, she shouted, swiping the hair back, tucking it behind her ears. Peggy stopped, listened. Not so very long ago, she had been able to zero in on the terrified gulps of air, the occasional sobs. But somehow, as if turning four was magic, Stephen had learned to breathe shallow in his chest, silent, now he really could hide from her. For a while. She continued her search, not under the bed, not in the cupboards where he had hidden last week, crouched in an impossibly small space behind the food processor, not in the linen closet, room by room, cavity by cavity, shadow by shadow. She came back to the bedroom. He was there. She could sense it. But where? Grabbing an empty hanger, she poked back between the clothes, jabbing at the wall. Where are you? She screamed. She lashed out with her arm, bringing clothes and hangers to the floor in a jangling, tangled heap. No small boy crouched amid her shoes. Peggy picked up a narrow black lace-up that Stephen had once referred to as her witch shoes. She threw it against the closet wall hard enough to dent sheetrock. Then she spun around, as if to catch him sneaking out behind her. Nothing. If you don't come out, she said, her voice crooning, it will be worse, would it? Even Peggy didn't know. Certainly Stephen didn't, corpse still beneath a dark lair that didn't offer enough oxygen for even his shallow breaths. Would she still hit him? Certainly. 
so he couldn't go out. Maybe this time she wouldn't find him if he stayed perfectly still. Peggy threw a few more shoes against the wall, streaked the mirror with her favorite lipstick. Damn that kid. He was supposed to come when she called. When she found him, she was going to beat his little butt red. She looked around the room again. Dresser, chair, bed. The quilt was a little sloppy around the pillows. Holding her breath, walking soft, she approached. She jerked the quilt down, nothing. She took the corner of a foam pillow in each hand, pulled. Stephen lay crosswise at the head of her bed, chest and arms so hunched he almost wasn't there. His eyes were squeezed shut, the long lashes spiking out. Peggy just stood there, arm upraised and rigid. He was going to see it coming. The squinched eyelids barely fluttered. Her muscles throbbed. Then he peeked at her, eyes bright with tears and terror. Peggy's anger melted, ran down her spine. Oh, baby, she said. Mommy found you. We were playing a game, weren't we? The boy nodded, a smile stretched tight as a grimace forcing itself across his face. The mother gathered him up, rubbing the shaking back, the trembling legs. You hid. You hid, she babbled into his soft neck. But Mummy found you. Mummy always finds you, doesn't she? His nod was so quick, so small, that Piggy could hardly feel it against her shoulder, but it was enough. The Mommy is going to read a story to her, sweetie, she said. Would you like that? Again, the minute nod. What story would you like, she asked, not really expecting an answer. Stephen didn't talk didn't say a word. He looked at the pictures in the books and pointed sometimes. If he wanted a drink of water, he climbed up on a chair and got it himself. He's really smart, Peggy would tell her friends, probably a genius. Einstein didn't talk until he was four, or was it Edison? Maybe he had babbled as a baby. Peggy couldn't really remember, but he was her quiet little man now. They reached the bookshelf, and Peggy hitched his weight onto one hip so he could see. "'Pick a story, sweetie,' she said. He looked at her with a question in his eyes. She gave a little shake. "'Pick,' she said, "'or I will.' His hand darted out, pulled a slim, coverless book from the stack. "'Oh, no,' she cried. "'Do we have to read that one? You always pick that one.' Stephen began to shake. He dropped the book. In a minute, he would be crying, she knew, silent tears squeezing past his lashes. Oh, all right, she said, stooping. Stephen's head banged against the shelf. Sorry, she muttered. She grabbed the book. A page fluttered out. Stephen's body tightened. Well, that's what happens if you throw your book, she said. She stepped on the fallen page and carried her son to the couch. Peggy put on her bright voice, as she always did when she read. She was a good reader, she knew. She did voices and sounds and put everything into it, and Stephen was the perfect listener, so they read a lot, as much as they could. Stephen sat upright beside her. You can sit on Mummy's lap, she said in her bright voice. 
The boy hesitated for a second, then climbed onto her lap, his body as stiff as the missing cover of his favorite book. Peggy began, but not with the first page, since it was lying on the floor near the bookshelf. I've run away from a little old woman, and I can run away from you. I can, I can. The gingerbread boy raced down the lane with the old man puffing behind him. Soon he came to a cow standing in a field. Stop so I can eat you, said the cow. Run, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. Peggy made the cow sound low and mournful, the gingerbread boy sprightly and boastful. Her favorite was the sneaky fox. When she got near the end, she always put all her effort into creating a smooth, sleek, devious voice for him. Stephen relaxed as she read, fitting into the curve of her arms. She knew the book by heart, had read it so many times that she didn't even need to look at the pages. So she looked at Stephen's golden head instead, and at the curve of his cheeks from above. Every time the gingerbread boy talked, the muscles in his cheek moved. Was he smiling? Once she took his chin in her hand and lifted it to see if he was. The smile, if there ever had been one, disappeared into fear. Peggy dropped his chin, continued reading. The bright voice sounded a little hollow to her, and Stephen didn't soften again. By the time they reached the fox, Peggy was as stiff as her son. She channeled the energy into her voice, creating a character that almost lived. She could hear the jaw snap in her mind as the fox tossed the naive gingerbread boy off his nose. The picture in the book showed the entire gingerbread boy disappearing into the fox's maw. That had always bothered Peggy. In the other pictures of the two of them together, the gingerbread boy seemed larger, too large for one bite. Realistically, there would probably be crumbs and pieces, maybe a leg flying. She shook her head and closed the book. Suddenly she felt weary, drained. Mummy's tired, she said to Stephen, dumping him off her lap onto the couch. He didn't move. Mummy's going to bed. It was dinner time, really, but Peggy wasn't hungry. She felt as if she had just gulped down an entire gingerbread boy. Sickly sweet. Her stomach heaved, settled. Mummy's going to bed, she repeated. Stephen sat on the couch where she had dumped him. When he was sure she had gone, he walked silent to the refrigerator, tugged the door. There was pizza left from last week in a sagging box, but it was on the top shelf with a bowl on it. He could never get that down quiet enough. His stomach grumbled, wanting the pizza. Stephen shut the fridge door, careful. He pulled out the bottom drawer and stepped on the edge to pull himself up on the countertop. No bread in the cupboard just empty bags with moldy heels. He tried a tiny bite, gagged at the musty smell. Peanut butter, though. He struggled the top off, finessed a spoon from the silverware drawer as skillfully as a pickpocket. Smooth, pale peanut butter. He licked it from the spoon, let it melt on his tongue. 
After the second spoonful, Stephen's throat was caked with peanut butter. He climbed up on the counter again, chose a glass. Halfway to the sink, he stopped. Sometimes, when you turned the water on, the pipes clunked. That would wake her up. He set the glass on the counter, tried to swallow saliva to clear his mouth and throat. No. Maybe milk. Stephen tiptoed to the fridge again. Jimmy did open. The milk was on the second shelf from the top, just within his reach. He grasped it with small hands, lowered it to the floor. Quietly, he retrieved his glass and set it on the floor before the carton. The carton was half full, maybe more. He tilted it over his glass, lower, lower. Milk began to flow in gasping spurts, spraying over the edge of the glass. Stephen jerked. The glass teetered, went over. Stephen gulped, froze. No, please, no. He had to hide now, hide good, better than ever. Run, 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 he whispered in his mind. Run, run, run. He slipped off to his bedroom, the refrain running through his mind, the milk running in pools over the kitchen floor. Run, 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 as fast as you can. You can't catch me. The door snicked shut behind him. Peggy slept until cold night crept through her open window. She shivered, lay awake in the darkness, full bladder, empty stomach. She swung bare feet out of bed and cranked the window shut. After she went to the bathroom, she padded into the kitchen toward the refrigerator. Her toes stepped into cold wet, and she went into a sidestep, kicking over the milk carton. It glugged its contents over the floor. Peggy swore and reached for the light switch. The glass, the carton, the original spill, all pointed to Stephen. Stephen! she yelled, splitting the night. You're going to get it! At his door, she paused, for she thought she heard a voice, her voice, reading. Run, 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 taunted the boastful voice of the gingerbread boy, as fast as you can. Peggy flung the door open. The air reeked with spices, with sweetness. You can't catch me, it said. Stephen's covers were drawn up tight over his head. Stop it, she yelled. Stop saying that. When her own voice had faded, the room was silent. You are not going to get away with this, she said. She grabbed the edge of the sheet and flung it back. Instead of Stephen's pale face and gold hair glinting in the feeble light from the hall, Peggy saw a dark mass with white eyes staring at her. The spicy smell was almost intolerable. Her empty stomach lurched. She stumbled back and turned on the light. Lying in Stephen's bed was a gingerbread boy with red licorice mouth and sliced almond eyes. Well, that made me hungry. Sunday evening at the Hugo Losers Party up in the Texas Delegation Suite, they had these tasty little pies in a stick, and 
They had cookies, cookies of all sorts. Yum. So thank you. Thank you, Laurel. Laurel Winter is from rural Montana. Is there any other kind of Montana? Where she attended a one-room country grade school. Her higher education has been eclectic, she says. She studied English, physics, and psychology at Montana State and dove into numerous writing and art classes as well. She's won back-to-back Risling and Asimov's Reader's Poll Awards for poetry. She has gotten a World Fantasy Award for her novella Sky Eyes and the 2003 McKnight Artist Fellowship for Children's Fiction. Her first novel, Growing Wings, was a finalist for the Mythopoeic Award for Children's Fantasy. Stop by her site at http and never mind, we'll put it below. It's at laurelwinter.com. And thank you for this, Laurel. And more, please, more. Business, the usual. It will be out soon, and soon we'll have the information on how to order it on our website. What, you ask? No, you don't ask, because you already know. You know I'm talking about Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, out this October, Halloween. You'll have to have two, at least two, maybe more. One for yourself, another for your best friend, a third for whomever else you might meet that you might think might like it. Maybe, well, just keep it in your head. You're going to love it. Writers, poets, send us your stories, send us your poems. Go to the Tales to Terrify webpage. Click the Submissions button at the top. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Uh, writers, send us your ten terrifying minutes, record them, send them with ten terrifying minutes in the subject line, and we'll cast them, make you famous, like that. Also, and I blush to say it, send us your money. Click on the button, contribute. It'll help. Enough? Enough. Our main fiction tonight is from an old friend and an old friend of the show, Stoker award-winning novelist and short story writer John Everson. John's a multiple nominee for the Stoker Award and in 2004 won for his first novel, Covenant. He was also nominated in 2007 for his short story, Letting Go. We'll have that one sometime down the road, we hope. Tonight's story is a lovely little domestic drama narrated by Josie Babin. It's called The White House by John Everson. There is no poetry in death, Mrs. Tanzer said. Only loss and rot, stink and waste. I never could understand those Gothic romantics who celebrate the dark and lust after the cycle of decay. The little girl in front of her didn't say a thing, but nodded creamy, unblemished cheeks as if she understood. I suppose that doesn't make much sense to you, Mrs. Tanzer continued, running a powder-coated finger up the girl's cheek. You came here hoping to sell cookies and to visit my nieces, and here I am talking to you about death. But I can't deny death, mind you. Everything has its place, and every place its thing. The older woman laughed and stood up from the table. 
her plate of thinly sliced apples remained untouched, uneaten the brown creep of time already shadowing the fruit. The girl's plate, however, glistened with the juice of an apple long gone. Mrs. Tanzer ground a pestle into a tall bucket that squeaked and shifted on the counter as she worked. Well, I'm sorry my nieces Jen and Jilly aren't here any longer. They only came for a visit, so I'm glad you got to meet them. Perhaps you'll have the chance to be with them again soon. But I talk too much, and time passes too fast, too fast. Eat my apples, dear. Waste not, want not. The plate slid across the table. Mrs. Tanzer raised a silver eyebrow as it did. You are afraid of this house, aren't you? The child nodded slowly. Her eyes were blue and wide, and the reflection of the older woman's methodic grinding and pummeling of the substance in the bucket glimmered like a ghost in their mirror. I can't say that I'm surprised. Quite the reputation it has. I didn't realize that when I moved in, but now it makes sense what a steal it was. I knew there was something wrong when the realtor quoted me the price. You could see it in her face. She was afraid, that silly woman was. Not that she knew why. A beautiful old mansion like this, perched on the top of the most scenic hill in town? I have to admit, I didn't care what was wrong with it. For that price, I thought, I could fix it. And then I moved in and started teaching down at Bernard Elementary, and I found out why that girl was scared. You know, she wouldn't even walk into the house past the front foyer. Mrs. Tanser laughed. The pestle clinked against the top of the bucket and a hazy cloud puffed from the opening like blown flour. The one warning that woman said to me was, You know, it's a bad place for children. I didn't even ask why. I don't have any, I told her. That shut her up. Or maybe it didn't. I didn't care. I walked up those gorgeous oak stairs that wind out of the living room, and up to the boudoir. I wanted to see it all, with or without her help. She didn't come with me. Mrs. Tanzer stopped her grinding then and considered. Would you like to see the upstairs? she asked. The little girl shrugged, and the older woman dropped the pestle. That settles it. Jenna and Jilly aren't here, but I can still show you the house. Come on upstairs. I'm going to show you the most beautiful four-poster bed your little eyes have ever seen. The girls loved it. It may be the only four-poster bed your little eyes have seen. The girl rose from the table. Hands held straight at the sides of her red and green striped skirt. She wanted to leave, felt embarrassed that she'd been coaxed into staying somehow. Her freckles threatened to burst into flame as she waited for Mrs. Tanzer to wash her hands in the sink. Come on, then, Mrs. Tanzer said at last, and led the girl back towards the front door she'd come in. Her backpack from school still lay abandoned on the floor nearby. 
Mrs. Tanser put a foot on the first varnished step and then paused. What's your name again, then, young lady? Trisha? The girl answered in a voice high as a flute song. Trisha, Mrs. Tanser announced, waving at the crystal jewels of the chandelier above and the burnished curves of the banister on the second-floor landing above. Welcome to White House, she said. Welcome to the House of Bones. At the top of the landing, Mrs. Tanzer stopped again. This house was built in 1878 by Garfield White, she announced. I looked it up. He was a railroad man, made his living helping folks move their steel and wood and food and such from one place to the next. Why he settled here in the middle of nowhere, I'll never know. But there you go. Everything has a place, and every place its thing. He built this place, and put his wife here in it to raise their son. Maybe he thought she'd give the boy a good upbringing here, away from the corruption and sin of the cities. Mrs. Tanzer motioned for the girl to follow her down the hall to the dark-rimmed doorway of a room. That woman spent her time in here, so the stories go, day after day after day, while her Garfield rode the rails making his fortune. He stayed out on those rails more and more, hoping maybe to gain his son an inheritance. The older woman stepped with a click and an echoey clack into the room. The walls were papered in a pattern of whirling pinks and blossomed yellows. But the garish sidelights did little to detract from the majesty of the enormous mahogany bed that dominated the center. Its rich posts rose from lion-claw paws on the floor to taper in spears to within inches of the faded ceiling. A translucent gauze of yellowed lace hung between the posts and darkened the space with a ghostly light. The more her husband stayed lost on the trains, the more his wife stayed lost in here, in this very bed, Mrs. Tanser said. Go ahead, sit on it yourself and see why. Trisha stepped into the room. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. But stopped at the edge of the mattress, which was nearly tall as her. Use the step, Mrs. Tanzer said, pointing to the dark wooden box near the girl's feet. In those days, you wanted to sleep as high above the ground as you could. Rats, you know. Trisha hopped up onto the step with the mention of rodents and rolled her body onto the heavy down mattress, smiling at the caress of silken blue comforter that covered it. They called it the White House, and not because it was in Washington, D.C., Mrs. Tanzer said, but it was anything but white inside. Mrs. White kept all the drapes pulled shut and spent more and more time in here, in this bed. They say she was trying to make it feel like nighttime inside so her son would sleep. Had the colic and cried all day long, but pulling the drapes did nothing to calm the boy, and after a while Mrs. White went a little bit mad, I think. Day after day, night after night, her baby cried, 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 and she paced this floor with him, pounding his tiny back and begging him to burp, and then screaming at him to burp. Mrs. Tanzer shook her head. That boy never saw the nest egg his father was out putting away. When Mr. White came back from one of his long trips down the rails, he found the house dark and all the shutters pulled. I probably shouldn't be telling you this, you being a young girl and all, but you've probably seen worse on TV. Oh, the things they show on that tube. Mrs. Tanzer shook her head, brows creased in the dreadful sadness. When Mr. White came home that day, he walked up those same stairs you and I just did and knew right away something was wrong. I won't say more than this, but the smell was in the air and he was no fool. He rushed to the bedroom and threw open this door and... Trisha's eyes widened as the story unfolded. When the light streamed into the pitch-black room, he found his wife and son here in the shadows. Only they were in no condition to leave. The poor boy was hung from his tiny neck right off of that pole there. Mrs. Tanser pointed to the right pole at the foot of the bed. Mrs. White had tried to quiet him by wrapping a sheet around his head, but when he didn't quiet, she'd finally snapped. She hung him by his tiny neck like a Christmas ornament at the foot of the bed, and when he finally quieted, she laid down on the pillow and went to sleep. When she woke and realized what she'd done, she took her own life, using her husband's straight razor. If I took the sheets off this bed, you could still see the marks of her blood. Nobody's ever changed that mattress. She laid down right there where you are and cut herself again and again and again until she couldn't cut or scream any more. Trisha leapt from the bed as if it had turned into a stove burner. Mrs. Tanzer grinned, wrinkles catching at the corner of her eyes like broken glass. 
She used that blade so much, they say she had to have a closed casket. Can't imagine cutting your own face with a razor blade myself. But I can't imagine hanging your own baby, neither. There's a reason they started calling this place the House of Bones, but that came later. Mr. White kept this place for almost thirty years after his wife killed their son and herself here, and he never remarried. In fact, he may have been dead for a year or more before the town grew wiser. He was gone for long periods of time on the railroad, and it was only when the spring winds brought a tree down on the west wing of the house that someone from the town realized it had been months and months since Mr. White had been seen. When they looked into it, they found out he hadn't been out on a rail for more than a year, and that's when someone thought to look in the basement. Mrs. Tanzer looked at the trembling girl and shook her head. I'm sorry I'm scaring you. My home does not have a cheery history, I must admit. But it's fascinating, too, don't you think? The old woman shook her head. Come on downstairs and I'll buy some of those Girl Scout cookies. A lady needs her vices, huh? The doorbell rang, but there was no silhouette showing through the stained purple glass in the front door of White House. Mrs. Tanzer answered the ring, nevertheless, and smiled as she saw the pale features of the girl on the landing, shivering and yet waiting outside. So small she couldn't even send her shadow through the glass. Come in, child, she insisted. You'll catch your death of cold. I don't believe your mother lets you go out like that in the fall chill. Tricia entered the house again, driven by a feeling she could not have explained. The house scared her to death. Mrs. Tanser was strange, but interesting. A welcome diversion after a boring day at school. I didn't think you'd come back after the story of Mr. and Mrs. White, the teacher exclaimed. Sometimes I feel like I am just the steward for this house. I have to give its history, no matter how twisted it may be. She motioned the girl into the kitchen, a room colored in orange walls and burnished counters. You're probably hoping for my nieces, but I'm afraid they're not around to play with you right now. Can I cut you an apple? Mrs. Tanser asked again, and Tricia nodded. Good. After a while, the older woman went back to her grinding, pounding work at the counter and talked to Tricia from across the room. Hmm, where did we leave off last time? How it all began, I think. Yes, I suppose you're wondering what happened after the Whites lived in White House. The girl nodded, and Mrs. Tanser barely waited for that response. Mr. White was found in the basement. I won't go into how his disposition was, other than to say that the bones of Mrs. White and Baby White were found with him. The house was eventually sold to another family, and life went on, for a time. Mrs. Tanzer brushed the dust from the lapels of her maroon collar. It smeared like dried milk across her chest. You can't hide the past, she said, nor can you hide from the past. What is, is, and what was, was. The next people who bought this house pretended that the Whites hadn't killed themselves here, and as a result, 
Trisha looked up from her slice of apple with a keen gaze of expectation. Well, they didn't consider the fact that they might also spend their lives and deaths here. Sometimes, Mrs. Tancer said, eyes looking far, far away, a mother's love is not endless. In fact, it doesn't even really begin. The older woman rubbed a tear from the wrinkles at the side of her eye and forced a grin. Silly old woman I am, she said. You're just a girl and you can't even begin to understand the twists and cul-de-sacs of a mother's love. I had a tough one is all, and even now I can hear her scolding me. I've met your mama at the PTA, and she's not like that. Not like that at all. You're a very lucky girl. So where was I? Oh, yes, the next family. A pastor, the father was, come here all the way from Omaha. Why here, again, I'll never know. This must be the end of the line for some folks, and they just don't know it. Hell, why would they come here if they did? Something draws them, though, because no matter how many young folks try to escape this town after they graduate— the place keeps growing. Back in those days, before the Great War, there were just a couple hundred here, and the Martins moved into this house with a huge welcome from the townsfolk. For a time, Pastor Martin even held services right here in this house, in the sitting room, I believe, until a proper parish chapel could be built down in the center of town. All that holiness didn't settle things, apparently, though, in White House because the pastor and his family came to a similar end as the Whites did. Things were happy here for a few years, and the Martins had two children, Becky and Joseph. But, just like Mr. White, Pastor Martin's vocation began to consume him, leaving Mrs. Martin here in the house all alone with the children day after day. The story goes that Mrs. Martin got bit by the green bug, and started thinking that Pastor Martin was spending far too much time down at the new chapel in town. There's no telling if it's true or not, but she thought the pastor was making time with a pretty little hussy in the back pew while she was trapped here in this old, cold house with two screaming kids. I'm talking too big for you, aren't I? Mrs. Tanser said, noting the confused expression on the girl's face. The pastor's wife thought he had gotten a girlfriend is the thing, and he was married to her, and she didn't want him to have a girlfriend. So she locked little Becky and Joseph into a small room at the back of the house. Someone, probably Mr. White, had added on and built the room by hand. It wasn't completely true. Sometimes, Pastor Martin would come home at night and hear those kids screaming in the back of the house, and when he'd let them back out, they'd tumble into the house proper, shaking and blue with cold, because none of the seams of that room were level. The outside could leach in easily. Hell, you could see the grass waving in the wind through the gaps, and the drafts on this hill in the winter are something horrible, I have to tell you. Even asleep in that big four-poster bed upstairs, I put an afghan on top of the covers in December. Can you imagine how cold it must have been for those children when they could actually see the outside through the cracks in the walls? Anyway, 
Pastor Martin yelled at his wife many a time for how she treated those children. Yelled so loud the people a mile down the hill in town could hear him and mark his words. And she'd yell right back and accuse him of taking the Lord's work to the devil. Not to mention that tart Beatrice Long. She thought he was making time with a church whore. Tricia put a hand over her mouth to stifle a yawn, and Mrs. Tanzer pushed the plate of apples closer to the girl. I'm going on too long, aren't I? Let me speed it up for you some. An old woman can go on. One day Pastor Martin came home, and for once the house was quiet. His wife told him the kids had gone to stay with friends in town for the weekend, and he heaved a sigh of relief. The noise had really begun to get to him, and that, as much as anything, was why he had been spending more and more time at the chapel. The Martins reportedly had a lovely dinner, and even broke out a bottle of wine to celebrate their brief vacation from the children. Pastor Martin tried to get romantic with his wife, but she waved him off of that. You wouldn't want to make more of the little screamers, would you? she said. Mrs. Tanzer paused, looking quizzically at Trisha's moon-round cheeks. That probably doesn't mean much to you yet, does it? Hmm. Well, it came to Sunday, and Pastor Martin spoke after church services with the folks his children were supposedly staying with, thanking them for their hospitality. But they looked confused at his thanks, and told him that they'd be happy to have Becky and Joseph over any time, but they hadn't seen the kids these past few days. Pastor Martin was upset by that, and after the last service headed home in a rush. He wondered if he'd gotten the family wrong that the kids were staying with. When he entered the house for the third day in a row, it was completely silent, but Mrs. Martin waited for him at the table. Sit, she insisted. Eat. He sat, but asked where the children were. Mrs. Martin smiled sweetly and ignored him, fixing herself a sandwich and then pushing the plate towards him. Light or dark? she asked. Both, he said absently, and as she put the meat on his plate, along with a long crust of bread, he asked her again, Where are the kids? Mrs. Martin smiled that strange little grin again and nodded as he lifted the bread to his mouth and chewed. You're eating them, dear. Becky's light and Joseph's dark. Trisha's eyes went wide as she set the piece of apple she held back on the plate, uneaten. Horrible, hmm? Apparently Mrs. Martin had used the back room to turn her children into cold cuts. When he screamed and beat on her for her horrible crime, she only smiled and smiled, and told him to make more with Beatrice Long. Back then, in a town this size, they didn't have asylums, and so Mrs. Martin never actually left this house. Pastor Martin locked her in the room she'd killed her children in, and fed her meals at morning and night. She never came out of there again, and whenever he'd break down and cry and ask her why, all she would say was, The house needs strong bones. Mrs. Tanzer grinned. Creepy, hmm? Want to see the room? Trisha's eyes widened. Oh, don't worry. The Martins are long gone from there. Come along, I'll show you. Mrs. Tanzer led Trisha through a hallway in a long, dark sitting room to a white door. 
She turned the latch and a metal bolt clacked audibly before she turned the old round knob. They stepped through into a small, dark room. It had no windows at all, but still it was lit. The sun beamed in through hairline cracks in the grout between the stones that had been shaved and stacked to form the addition. Shadows played like anxious ghosts on the walls, and dust motes rained in lazy dances as the wind shifted and groaned outside. This is it, Mrs. Tancer said. The infamous White Room. They think that Mr. White built it with his own hands and used the bones of his wife and son as the grout between the rocks. Mrs. Martin followed his lead. The paint you see in here? The reason the room is so white? She ground up the bones of those two kids after carving them up for luncheon meat here in this room. She used the dust of their bones to paint this room an everlasting off-white. Tricia stared in horror at the walls. The paint is their bones? Mrs. Tancer nodded. It seemed a sacrilege to paint over the remains of those poor souls, so the room has been left exactly as it was when Pastor Martin sat down here in the middle of the room and, well, there's no delicate way to put this. He blew his brains out with a hunting rifle. Lord knows where he got it, a man of the clergy and all. Someone wiped down the ceiling and wall over there. She pointed to a shadowy stain to their right. But all in all, the bones of those children are still right here, chalky and white, for anyone to see. Oh, my dear, you're trembling. You're white as the walls. Come here, I'm so sorry. I'm an old woman and talk too much. I forget myself. And you, just a tenth grader and all. Let's have us a soda pop, hm? Mrs. Tanzer pulled the wide-eyed girl from the room and bolted the lock once again. Don't need any of those summer breezes or restless ghosts getting in, she mumbled, and then shook her head. Darn it all, there I go again. The massive door opened with a long squeak. Mrs. Tanzer peered through the foot-wide opening with a suspicious look on her face. Then her eyes lighted on the tousled hair of Tricia. You're probably here to see my nieces, aren't you? she asked. The girl shook her head. No, ma'am, I don't know them. Don't know them? Mrs. Tanzer looked confused. Then she slapped a palm to her forehead. My, oh, my, that's right. They came a-visiting a while before you came a-visiting, and you've just been too polite to correct an old woman before. She opened the door wider and motioned Tricia inside. Sometimes it's all a blur, she confided, and pushed the door shut. I remember now. I've been giving you the history of the house and fattening you up on apples. Not the best choice for fattening, I'll give you, but it's what I have. No chocolate cakes up here on the hill. Mrs. Tanzer motioned her into the kitchen. Where were we last time? I told you about the Whites and the Martins. There were others, too, but then in the fifties they turned the place into an orphanage. Mrs. Tanzer laughed. I know it sounds ridiculous. A house where children kept dying in horrible ways. 
a house where children's bones actually painted the walls white, and they turned it into an orphanage. But there you go. I wonder if they ever even saw the irony. The rhythmic sound of a knife on stone filled the kitchen as Mrs. Tanzer cut the girl an apple. Here we go, the older woman said, pushing a plate in front of the girl. She stared at the ceiling a moment and then grinned and nodded. Forty-seven. Mrs. Tanzer scooped the core of the apple and a couple of seeds from the counter and threw them in a waste can. Forty-seven children in all disappeared while this house was an orphanage. That's what I found out down there at the village hall. God knows why the town didn't have this place bulldozed, but then again, who cares so much about orphans? The old woman shook her head in obvious disgust and then motioned for Tricia to follow her. Grab an apple, she said. I want to show you something. Mrs. Tanser led the way past the dining room and a dark hallway and the horrible room of bone paint with its locked door. She stopped at another door, this one painted as dark as a 2 a.m. shadow. She pulled a ring of keys from the depths of her apron and explained, Sometimes at night I hear voices from in here, terrible voices, men howling, children screaming. When I open the door, they're never there, but I keep it locked anyway. She pushed the door open and stepped inside. Trisha followed, though hesitantly. The room expanded to fill the eye with a vista of beautiful stonework and a floor of intricate mosaic. Like most of the house, the predominant color was no color. The room hurt the eye in its melding of cream and vanilla and starving emaciated white. It also ascended three stories into the air and ran as deep as a football field. Over here, Mrs. Tanzer called, and led Tricia to a corner. She reached down to the floor and pulled on a small cord that poked out from beneath the shards of tile. A hidden trapdoor opened upwards at her pull. Look, Mrs. Tanzer pointed, and Tricia leaned in to stare down into the gap. The trap secreted a small cubbyhole, maybe eighteen inches deep and a foot wide. Its bottom was hidden by dozens of small white pebble-like shards. They covered the bottom and stacked on top of each other like a pound of gravel. Hold out your hand, Mrs. Tanser said. As Trisha did, her arm visibly shook. The older woman squeezed her outstretched palm and grinned. It's okay. They can't get you here. Their time was a long time ago. Now, you see these? She turned the girl's hand palm side up and ran a finger across the top joint, on the other side of the fingernail. I'm not sure what they intended, but I believe that little stack of bones down there are the top joints of all those missing orphans' fingers. Trisha ripped her hand away and gasped. Mrs. Tanzer shook her head. They say down in town that those orphans disappeared, but it's no mystery where they went. She let the trap fall down with a smack that echoed through the two-still room. Just look around you, she said, and gestured at the intricately laid floor. Those kids never left this room. Their bones are here, 
laid into the walls and the floor and the ceiling. Those kids built this room. Trisha's eyes had now widened so large that the whites of her eyes were circled in red. Yep, the old woman sighed. You're standing on them. The girl screamed. Just bones, Mrs. Tanser said. I wanted you to see, to understand. This house has a bad reputation, and rightly so. I'm sure those voices I hear coming from this room are from all those innocent orphans who had their fingers cropped off and their bones ground down to shards of decorative tile. It's this house, she said and shook her head, pulling Trisha closer. The girl didn't fight her embrace. All she could think of was that she was standing on the chopped-up bones of dead people. Everyone who's ever lived here has felt the need to add to the house, Mrs. Tanser said, and pulled the girl towards the back of the long room. The White House was large by the standards of the 1800s when Mr. White built it, but there have been many rooms added since. I showed you the drafty room last time you were here, and this room, which I think was probably a gymnasium for the orphans, was built over a long period. There are others. In the basement is a small closet that I believe was painted in the paste of a child. Its colors are faded and dulled now, but it looks to be a mad swirl of mud and blood and bone if you stare closely. There's a shed on the back of the property that has window frames that are rounded and made of what look to be rib bones. And the lock on that shed is a primitive thing, but it seems to be made of an arm or a leg bone that drops into place and holds the door fast. There's no way the realtor could have warned me, Mrs. Tanzer said. There's no way she could ever really have known. She wouldn't even stand inside this house. I wish she could have told me what I was in for. But the house, once you're here... They walked across the long bone mosaic room, and the chatter of Trisha's teeth began to reverberate through the silence. It's okay, child, Mrs. Tanser said. I just want to show you one more room. At the back of the long white room, she stopped and reached out to turn the latch on a door that only announced itself as thin seams set into the wall. It opened outward at her touch, and a cool breeze hit them as it did. I think that some of the rooms people added to the house were afraid to show their real colors, Mrs. Tanser said. The people knew what they were doing, on some level, and they bleached the bones and carved the bones and crushed the bones, into paste and mortar and paint. But when the house told me, when I realized what I would have to do, I made a pledge to myself to be true to the children who came here. The people who grew this house. They shouldn't be hidden in pieces, I said to myself, but celebrated. After all, everything has its place, and every place its thing. The things that build this house have their place. They had life, and in death, they grow the white house in rooms of bone. And this house must have its thing. These days, that's me. 
Mrs. Tanzer picked up a hammer and raised it above Trisha's head. She breathed deep as the girl squealed and tried desperately to run. Her screams rang out like bullets scraping metal. But Mrs. Tanzer's other hand held the small girl fast, a trapped animal. You'll live here forever, she promised, and I promise you'll hardly feel a thing. I can't believe the torture some of these kids must have gone through. I could never be so cruel. Trisha screamed again, a horrible, larynx shredding sound. But she couldn't break free of the old woman's grip. Mrs. Tanzer lived only for the house now, and Trisha had never felt such a desperate strength before. The veins of the woman's hand stood out, blue and serious, above the small girl's reddening fingers. I came to this town because I loved children. Jenna and Jilly didn't want to stay here either, she whispered. Look at them up there. She nodded at two tiny skulls shrieking in silence on the wall. But what could I do? I adore children. The house. This house. It never relents. Hold still. Mrs. Tanzer said, I want your face to stay this beautiful always. Trisha twisted and turned, staring at the bone white eye sockets and jaws of the handful of splintered skulls that lined the half constructed wall of the small room like fractured masks. Those perfect, unblemished boned faces screamed silently in chorus with her as Mrs. Tanzer turned to make her kill. It's going to take a long time to finish this room, the old woman lamented. But I will finish my room. Everything has its place and every place its thing. This room is mine. She brought the hammer down. Thank you, John. And thank you, Josie. You can touch base with John Everson at his dark arts site. It's at http colon slash slash www.johneverson, one word, dot com slash, or just click on the link below. Just to let you know, John's sixth novel, Nightwear, debuted in an ebook format in June of this year and an ink-and-paper trade paperback edition will follow. That'll be in stores just in time for Halloween. By day, Josie Babin, who read The White House, is a biologist, a happy little human cog in the grand machine of medical research. She says when she is not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. That sounds familiar. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works as well as a few video game boxes. Oh, that's all very familiar. And that will be it for the week. Come, children, be up, be doing, be out, 
be spreading the word. Next year, next year, we are going to win one. Okay, even if we don't, we'll still have each other, the night, the nook, our tales to terrify, and of course, Mahler. So, head for the streets, wander the night, listen for a voice that might call your name. Listen, listen for it to call you, then run, run, run as fast as you can, in the door, up the stairs, into your room, and under the covers, and hold your breath, and listen until the voice calls you, whispers, threats, till that voice becomes just the echoes of pleasant dreams. Hmm... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.